The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Formula One cars wouldn't go very far without the hard-working men and women who toil day and night in the garage. So today we're talking about the mechanics and the key role they play in a Grand Prix team. Gary also tackles the practicalities of F1's bold new wheel arch initiative and explains why it's so difficult to simulate varying track surfaces using wind tunnels. Welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw, but far more importantly, I'm joined by Gary Anderson, who has almost half a century of F1 experience under his belt and is never short of an opinion or three. Gary, we've had the 22nd and final race of this long season, so what did you make of goings-on in Abu Dhabi? Um, yeah, it was okay. It wasn't the most spectacular race um, of the season, I must admit. Um, I, you know, sort of disappointed for Perez not getting his second in the championship, I suppose. But, you know, from my point of view, that all got thrown away in Brazil. Um, and there's never any one race that's, that, that dictates anything like that. You know, there's a lot of other t- times during the season. I'm sure if you look deep enough, you can see where there's a, a point or two lost. Um, but uh, I think from my point of view, Abu Dhabi is a typical example where DRS is a bit of a problem. You know, you've got two DRS uh, sections, one after the other. And so it's, you know, it's one of those sort of situations. If you pass on the first one, there's a good chance you get past, repassed on the second one. Um, so it's, you know, that needs a bit of separation, I think. It needs something to, to stop that sort of thing happening so much. If you're going to use DRS, then um, other than small bits and pieces, I think you could say that Max Verstappen dominated the race. I mean, you know, the pace he was running at was just to keep the gap to, to Leclerc. And obviously, both of them doing one-stop races meant that they were both just keeping the gap as best they could and keeping the tyres uh, underneath them so they didn't over overwork the tyres too much. But it was a, a simple race. It was start with mediums, put on the hards and go to the end. So the tyres the themselves um, were capable of that one-stop race. There might have been a you know, if somebody else had got the two-stop right in a fast car, then perhaps it would have been a chance that they could have done something, but it didn't happen. So the end of the 22 seasons upon us, first year of the new regulations, um, not so much controversy as it was at the end of last year, not quite so much controversy as it was at the end of last year, and uh, Lewis Hamilton's first reliability failure. Um, so Mercedes have a lot of work to do to close that gap. I'm sure they'll be uh, working pretty hard during the winter to, to try and pull it all back together again. Yeah, plenty to look forward to for next year. And in a later episode, we're going to have a look back at the technical stories of the year and the success of the regulations. And also, before the season's over, we'll have a look ahead to next year. But as always, we'll start with letting you talk about any topic you feel like from the world of F1 this week. Well, obviously, the the uh, announcement the FIA that we're going to look at how to... Um, make the cars be able to run better in, in water and wet conditions because obviously the last thing you want to do is have to delay a race, cancel a race or or even a practice or qualifying session just because it's a bit wet. You know, it's a, it's a sort of circle of events, to be honest, um, what what really happens, I suppose you might call it, because the, the we've seen in quite a few occasions that uh, the FIA are reluctant to make decisions and as you're not making a decision in the wet, it gets wetter. So they end up with a lot of lying water. Um, and it's rivers across the track that really are the big the difficult thing. A normal wet-ish or damp conditions is not a problem for the tyres that we've got and the cars that we've got. 
But it's whenever you get rivers across the track, the cars uh, aquaplane so easily. And aquaplaning is two things. One is um, the, the bottom of the car basically uh, sitting on the ground. As we can see, you know, those sparks that we see from underneath the car um, are because the car hits the ground. Now, whenever you've got a film of water between the, 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 the ground and the car, it's pretty slippery. So, you know, these, these new cars for 2022 need the right height to run lower than they did in 2021. So that's one of the sort of situations they've created themselves by having the cars low to the ground. Obviously, then the tyres come into play, how much water they can displace, how they can, you know, hear this 60 litres a second or something, 80 litres a second or whatever it is, from the tyres. All we can say is that, that that might be so, but it's not adequate. Whether that's correct or incorrect, um, it should be very, very easy to model um, because obviously the, the wheels are a rotating device and the water level is a certain thickness. So you should be able to model it quite well, a tread, a tire tread. So the two things come into play. One is the tires being able to cope with the water, the rivers, and two, the car getting out of the ground. The ideal thing for me would be just simply bigger wet tires because that does two jobs. One, it means you have to make a new, design a new tire with a new tread. Two, it will put the, a little bit more uh, compliance in the sidewall of the tire, which is what you want for wet. Anyway, you know, the, the, the stiffer the sidewall, the, the, the smaller the sidewall or such, um, then the less compliant it is and the wet you want more compliance. And um, three, it'll lift the car out of the ground. Now, you know, you're, you're, we're not talking, the, the wet tires are bigger than the, the, the dry tires at the moment, but only by a, by a small amount. And it does change the car, but I'm sure if you sat with all the teams, you could come up with a solution where you would make the, the front tire, you know, 30 millimeters bigger, the rear tire 50 millimeters bigger or something. They would keep the sort of car balance pretty much in control and allow you to jet the car out of the ground. Now, um, that would be my solution to being able to run in the wet. Um, now, you know, the wet is a very loose word. How wet is it we're talking about? But, uh, you know, the, the fact that they're looking at trying to um, create mud guards to, to reduce the spray, um, it, it's not, you know, that's not the problem. The Formula One car is a, is a fantastic vacuum cleaner and um, it just picks the water up and spits it out the back. It's the spray from behind that's the problem. You know, the, the lead driver never really has a problem. He can cope with any conditions because, you know, he's not getting that spray for a while. And obviously, as the spray builds up around the track, then he does get some of it. But it's the guys behind that that got the problem. You know, if you're fifth or sixth in the pack, you can't see a thing. So you're never, ever going to stop that by putting mud guards on it. Um, even, you know, if you we, if we look at sports cars, they still create a spray from behind them because of the picking the water up out of the track. Um, and they're fully covered wheels. So... Why, why do you want to try to do something that's impossible to achieve? You know, you'll get it to a level where it'll be okay, but I mean, I've done them all. I know what it's like in the conditions whenever your wipers don't work. You know, you, you have to have the wipers. Formula One cars don't have wipers. Um, they don't have the same set of circumstances. So from my point of view, if you want to have racing in the wet, you've got to look at the, the, the right head of the car and the tyre situation. And that's quite simple, you know, to me. Just the slick tires are a certain size. Intermediates might need to be a little bit bigger than that, but not too bad, not too much. And the wet weather tires need to be bigger and more effective in, in the moving the water. It's good that the FI are looking into this problem, but obviously, fundamentally, there's just a huge amount of water to deal with. And even if you can contain that spray, all you're doing is presumably clearing the water that bit less effectively. So 
doing that probably makes the water on the track worse or vice versa. So these things can't be separated, presumably. You know, you're sort of on a hiding to nothing because it's the level of spray as well. You know, if if I look back to, you know, 2003, whenever Fisichella won in Brazil, that was a typical race where there was, you know, uh, rivers across the track. Lots of people spun off it, uh, just going into turn three as such. And that was because of a river. Now, since then, they've cut grooves in the track to sort of relieve that so the, the, the water has somewhere to go. And that's not that difficult. It's only a sort of three millimeter wide groove every, you know, 100 millimeters or something. Um, and so it does get let the water run across the track. But the one thing we did there, which uh, the time was questioned, I think maybe, but uh, I went to Charlie Whiting in the morning and said, look, you know, we're in part for me rules. We're not allowed to adjust the car, but these conditions are terrible. And I requested permission to uh, raise the right out of the car, um, which he agreed to. Now, Ross Braun went bonkers about it because... Uh, they had apparently during qualifying raised the right height of their car, so they had their car set up for the wet as such. Didn't really matter in the end because um, Michael Schumacher spun off anyway. But um, with the with the high ride height, he still spun off as such. So you know, we we were allowed. Everybody was allowed to raise the ride height if they needed to. We we were first in there, I suppose you might call it, and uh, requested it. Uh, I don't know whether other people did raise the right hand or not, but it was the one thing that helped us to survive, you know, and it's quite a simple thing. You do not want these cars just bottoming out in a river and because you're a passenger, you know, it just takes all the, the load off the tires and you, you become a passenger. The driver has no hope. So, um, yeah, I, sometimes I, I just wonder because it's it's you can go about trying to fix a problem the right way and you can go about trying to fix a problem the wrong way. And at the minute... You know, I think the the change to looking at the mud guards and uh, whatever you like to call them, and the airflow, um, is going to just create spray in a different way. And as you say, it's going to leave the the water lying on the track for longer. So there's going to be spray for a longer amount of time. Um, might not just get in your eyes exactly the same, but there'll be spray for a longer time. So, yeah, from my point of view, ride height and tires are the two things that need to be fixed to run in the wet. From a practical point of view, does it not seem like an odd idea? As soon as they talk about wheel arches, which is a word the F1 Commission statement used, I think of Caterham or Westfields and their mudguard type things over the wheels. The suggestion is that these wheel arches can be bolted on before very wet sessions or during red flags. But is it not going to cause significant problems doing that to the car in aerodynamic terms? It seems a logical thing to look at, but is it just a little bit odd to bolt wheel arches onto what is fundamentally an open wheel car? Uh, yeah, I think completely odd. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I don't. These are these are suggestions, I suppose, or these are um, solutions potentially coming from somebody who doesn't have a clue what's going on, and that happens quite often. Um, you know, Bernie was very good at a time of, of sticking something in there and then letting people sort it out and react to it, um, but that doesn't happen anymore. These 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 ideas are all all good stuff. But, you know, anything has a consequence. And, you know, we see bits of debris on the track. You know, the, if you get wheel arches, we, we see Formula E races, you know, where they, where they just, because the wheels are covered, you know, they knock each other and, and suddenly the, the wheel fairings are flying off. Can you imagine a pit stop and changing from dries to wets and having to bolt on your mudguards at the same time? Or vice versa. You know, it's, it's one of those things. Because rain doesn't always happen before the session or before the race. It can happen at any point in time. So where do you draw the line as to to what you do you know you need an immediate reaction and that's why i'm saying when you put on intermediate tires it needs to raise the car a bit and when you put on wet tires it needs to raise the car a lot all those things happen automatically 
and that's you know the end of story. You don't have to stand there for a while and you know bolt on an extra wheel or mudguard or whatever it is. But they they happen automatically, and they happen the same for everybody. So it's yeah, uh, logic sometimes doesn't come into it. And we should say that currently this is something that's being studied. It could be adopted for 2024, although there is the possibility it might come in for the second half of 2023, should a suitable design be produced in time. Well, Gary, in a moment, we'll hear my interview with Mark Priestley, a former F1 mechanic. You started off in F1 as a mechanic with Brabham back in 1973 and was subsequently a chief mechanic. Much smaller teams then, clearly, and the chance to focus much more on everything on the car. In that time, it was really possible to be hands-on with everything, wasn't it? Yeah, you could be hands-on with everything. I mean, you know, whenever we talked about a Formula One team, then it was it was a Formula One team. It was responsible for making the car. I mean, we used to make build a chassis in the winter, make wishbones, make uprights. You know, we had specialists in that area, fabricators and stuff that were very, very good at the job, but you were part of it. You made, you know, you did part of it. Yes, you, you went to Cosworth and got an engine and put it in the back. You went to Hewland and got a gearbox. Um, and from there on, then it's developed, obviously, and it's got to be a very, very specialist uh, car. All the componentry are separated quite a lot. So I don't think the opportunity lies now um, you know, Mark got involved with McLaren, I think it was 2000 when they started. And, you know, it's one of those sort of things where it had changed by then. It had, had got to the point of where everything was, you know, so specialist. It was um, like building up a, a Lego kit, I suppose you might call it, where you got all your, your bits. Yes, you still had to, as a mechanic, put it all together and make it make it into a car. But, you know, back in the days when I started in the early 70s, you know, you were making bits. You were making bits at the circuit because you didn't have spares. So you learned a lot more about, or you learned a lot about what how the car went together and how you had to, you know, build stuff that was strong enough to do certain jobs. Uh, so it was a it was a very you know through the seventies eighties it was a very good learning curve. Um, and I'm a bit a bit sad that's been lost now. But it but it it's a matter of you know as I say back in the seventies we had a team Formula One team of like ten people. Uh, nowadays that's a thousand people. So that's the reason you know you you have more specialist requirements. You have more specialist people. You were able to move from mechanicing to being a technical director down the line. That hands-on learning path seems more closed off now with the standard route to go to university. And obviously, you didn't get your honorary doctorate from the University of Ulster until much later in life. But your university effectively was being there on the ground, working with every part of the car. Do you think it's a shame that's been lost? Or is it just the reality of F1 now? It's so specialised. And you can't be across everything in the same way. So, of course, you're going to take this much more thorough academic approach. Well, it's a, it's a bit like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, I suppose. You know, you, you're never quite sure. Um, for me, it's sad that that's the way it is because I like to interfere with everything. You know, way back when I started in Formula One, I, I remember sitting on the, my toolbox with Gordon Murray, um, talking to him about, you know, what is it for? Why is this? Why is this car? What is it? You know, what? what what makes it function? What makes it work? Asking the questions, you know, stupid questions that you would ask of somebody who knew the stuff, you know, and uh, that's important. And I think that that gets lost a bit now as well. Um, but from my point of view, I, I I don't like a Formula One like it is currently because it's just it is just um, so detached. There's no real responsibility, you know. When you told me designing and being technical director. I always had maybe a limited amount, but I always had good people 
that I, I trusted, you know, that were, were close to me in the team. And, you know, my, my job in the team was, was basically to, to sort of make sure we're going in a direction, not necessarily the right direction, but a direction, and we, and we backed it up. So I would make sure we're going in a direction and I would do the sort of initial scheming of the car and, you know, the layout of the car, basically, where things went. And then, you know, those, those specialists that I had would, would pull it together um, I would contribute to that as well, but they would pull it together. So it was, you know, it, it was the same sort of thing. But because it was such a small team, everybody had to do everything. Um, and nowadays, it's different from that. You know, so many, so many people, so many groups. It's more of a management process, and that's the bit I don't like. Now it's time for our interview with Mark Priestley, once a number one mechanic at McLaren in Formula One, and more recently a YouTuber, television presenter, author, speaker, consultant, podcast host. The list is almost endless. But like Gary, he is someone who is very good at explaining the technical side of F1 to the fans and offers a wonderful insight into the life and role of the hardworking mechanics who make it possible for the drivers to race these great cars. Mark, you have a huge amount of F1 experience as a mechanic with McLaren. You've since moved into the media side as well as turning your Formula One knowledge to corporate speaking. So why did you make that transition and what made you want to go from being the guy on the spanners to applying the lessons from F1 to other aspects of life? Yeah, so I mean, the thing that really first got me into Formula One was the tech. I mean, it was it was watching the cars on television and, you know, loving what was going on on track. But I was also fascinated by the the fact that cars look different, you know, if you go back to the 70s, we even had things like six wheeled cars, things that obviously looked very different. And I was fascinated by this, the fact that people had come up with different ideas within the same sort of regulations. So that was the first thing that got me into it. And then, of course, working at McLaren for 10 years, where it was, I was literally buried in amongst the tech of getting my hands dirty and working with it was just a dream come true, because I am a proper tech geek when it comes to this kind of stuff. So that was a, that was a nice you know, lovely way to spend the first part of my career. But one of the things that really dawned on me, and it only really dawned on me once I'd left the team in 2009, was that um, I'd kind of had this, what really is a privileged position to be at the heart of a team, a front-running team as well that had success, where we'd been at the very forefront of innovation. And I'd had these opportunities at times over my 10 years to sort of wander into the the R&D department, you know, in a, in a sort of quiet time and, and see little bit like the Q department at James Bond. You know, you go and see these incredible kind of inventions that are just being born, That some of which never saw the light of day on a car. Others did, but I saw them all day through their development process. And, and that really intrigued me. And once I'd left the team, I really got this understanding that fans were, many of whom were, were as intrigued as I was about this stuff, and yet they would never get that opportunity. So I had something or I had an experience or I had an insight that others perhaps would never ever get the opportunity to have and so I, I sort of developed this passion to share it and that's kind of where it all came from. You mentioned seeing all these processes and that highlights the fact that often people make the mistake of regarding the engineering side as completely separate from the mechanics in the garage who are doing the hard work so it's much more integrated than that given it does allow you that genuine 360 degree view of things I guess. Totally and and actually you know at McLaren and I'm sure it's the same at most teams the mechanics input, as well as the engineer's input and the driver's input, we all have a really crucial part to play in the development of any of these tech products that are coming through because, you know, from a, a mechanical perspective, we're the ones, we're the end user, if you like, of that particular product. So we have to make sure it works so that you get, get access to it. And we also have ideas how we can make it better. 
So there's no point in these ideas just coming from one small group of people that happen to be called designers. You know, this they play a really crucial part in that, but they can only do their job if they get the input from other people down the chain. And I was very proactive, perhaps because of my fascination with that side of things, but I was always very proactive and making sure that, you know, I'd go and see them, even if they weren't coming to see me on as regular a basis as I would have liked, I'd go and see them to find out what was coming through. And I'd put my two pennies worth in, you know, it was, um, it was a passion project as much as, as something that would actually m- maybe make my life easier and help to generate a bit more success. I mean, as well as the tech stuff, which really did grasp my imagination, the, the 10 years inside a Formula One team, the other part of it that really stands out that, that I had an insight into was the operational side. So there's, a, there's the sort of tech, the hardware, but also the operation. Like how do you come up with I- these ideas? How does the structure of a Formula One team work? And you know, one of these areas that I've really gone on and, and you touched on it earlier, doing things like corporate speaking and, um, and consultation and stuff, it, it comes about as because of having a full understanding of how this massive operation, maybe a thousand people, is mil- almost military grade coordinated. You know, everybody's sort of elite level. They're the best of the best in every discipline within the team. And getting those people working to the right in the right way seamlessly as best you can to produce these incredible tech components and then get the tech components to work together, you know, is not a sort of simple operation. It's is a bit that's rarely seen. You don't get to see that side of it when you flick the television on a Sunday, but it's something that's really interesting. And I think a lot of people, and I'm I'm now knowing that a lot of people can learn from. Can you break down the job? You were a number one mechanic, which, as the name suggests, makes you the lead mechanic on a car. So how does the structure work and how does the car crew operate? Yeah, it's you know, it's a good question because actually people don't know this. Um, and I you sometimes take it for granted because you're immersed in it. But, um, yeah, typically what happens, and it does vary up and down the pit lane a little bit, uh, maybe less so today, but certainly back in the old days with the, the really big teams that had an almost endless budget, certainly had more personnel on each car but i guess typically you might have a front end mechanic and what that means is you have one guy whose domain is literally the front end of the car so everything from the driver forwards and that was my job for a number of years when i first started on the race team so i'd be in that role responsible for looking after the cockpit the driver's uh, controls strapping the driver in making sure he's comfortable um, all the electronic boxes that were strapped in and, and situated around there, things like seat belts, but then everything forward of that. So the cockpit, the chassis, if you like, the monocoque uh, was was my bit of the car and all the bits that were bolted to it, like front suspension. So I was in charge of, as a front-end mechanic, I was in charge of all of those bits and, and I was the specialist, if you like, on those areas. And then you'd have the same role being done at the rear end. So you'd have a rear-end mechanic that would do exactly the same as me down the back of the car. But then you'd have a gearbox mechanic Again, total speciality just on the gearbox, which are a hugely complicated piece of kit. Uh, Then there'd be a number of engine um, mechanics or engine technicians who would be aligned with the engine partner, so Mercedes or uh, or Ferrari or or Honda, whoever it is. And they would come in and, and essentially build the engines up around the back of the garage. They would then be part of the crew along with the mechanics that would install them. And they would look after the operation of those engines all weekend long. So as a mechanic... I rarely got involved with the engine side of Formula One, other than helping to put it into the car and take it out, which seemed like we did every five minutes. Um, but it was always the, uh, the engine technicians that did most of the intricate work with the engine itself. Um, and then above all of those things, you have the number one mechanic. And in the latter years, that's what I progressed into at McLaren, where you're essentially in charge of all of those people. 
So when you've got sort of five or six people between the, you know, those guys are called the number two mechanics. Um, you know, the number one mechanic is coordinating those people. They're in charge of everything that happens on that car. And that car, you know, doesn't ever get signed off as being ready to race or ready to go onto the track until the number one mechanic is happy to do so. Um, the number one mechanic has a very close relationship with the driver, but also with the race engineer, uh, the sort of go between, if you like, in the middle of those two when it comes to technical things. Uh, so it was a job that, the more, like many jobs, you know, the more you cr- progress up the ladder in a more senior role, you actually do less of the original job that you sort of, you started off doing. You know, as you become a manager, you get your hands dirty less. You don't do as much of the the sort of bolting bits together and, and, and you know, rummaging around on the floor anymore. It's more about, you know, by the end of that, that 10 years, I was working almost entirely solely from a laptop um, and rarely ever touching the cars. So, um, it becomes a managerial role. It becomes a people role. So it's looking after those people, managing that that small team of people. Um, so a completely different role, I guess, to what most people would imagine. Because a number one mechanic, you think, you know, is the guy that's literally bolting the thing together. But actually, in many cases, that's much less of the case than people would think. Formula One cars are obviously prototypes, so you can't just go and pick up a Haynes manual and work out how to fix things from that. So what's the process when you're presented with a new car to (laughs) assemble and operate? And how do you go about learning it, given there's not so much guidance? And do you have to go back to the design side sometimes and say, hang on a minute, this doesn't quite work as it should? Is that a winter process or something that happens in testing in the early races? Yeah, that definitely happens. I mean, it, it starts in the winter. You know, the, the process tends to be that in sort of early January, I guess, in the most part, the, the chassis, the monocoque would get wheeled around from what we call car build at McLaren. Uh, teams have different names for it, but where they've sort of been mocking up bits and, and pre-fitting things, making sure things will literally physically work and fit onto a car. And then they go away and they, they remake those bits. But then the, the car itself, the chassis, gets rolled around to the race base. And that's the first time really that any of the mechanics get to get their hands on it. Gradually over January and February, these bits start trickling in from the various departments, suspension components, wiring harnesses. And you're right, there's no there's no manual, there's no instruction book for this. So part of it comes from the experience that we've all got. You know, you've probably built many of those cars before. And so there is an evolutionary thing that the the car you're working on now is probably some kind of evolution from the one that went before. So there's some similarities, um, but there's also a lot of experience within those mechanics. So part of it is figuring it out as you go, because, you know, in reality, because there's no instruction manual and it is a prototype, it's never been done before. You have to work with the designers to figure out how it should work. And sometimes it doesn't work first time. So sometimes you have to go back to the, the designer or you call the designer down and say, look, come and have a look at this. This is, I think, what you meant by the drawing. This is what I think it should look like. But actually, I think it would work better this way. Or if we made this modification, it's definitely going to work better with this other component that, that's got to go on afterwards. So that kind of conversation happens all of the time. And the car that ends up hitting the racetrack when you go testing, and certainly by the time you get to the first race, is often very different from the one that left the drawing board up in the the, the design office. That's really quite common. Um in terms of figuring out things like changes, of course, you know, you're right. You're piecing this car together over the course of January and February, quite often right up to the last minute before it goes testing. But then when it hits the racetrack, you're kind of expected to be able to make very quick changes. Uh, once you've got the car under control, its first you know day or so, and it's reliable, then you're starting to work through changes, set up changes. And you have to try and figure out how quickly you can do that. And that is something that just happens on the fly. 
And one of my roles actually in the in the latter stages of my career was um, when I moved into a sort of managerial position was to to really monitor that and to just sort of almost watch and even time the length of time it took to make a certain a standard change. So how long does it take to take a, to make a front ride height change? You know, if it's less than five minutes, we know that if we get into a qualifying session and we're literally running out of time, that's a change we could do in five minutes. But if it's going to take 10 minutes, but we've only got five minutes, we know that's not something we can achieve. And, and you have to go through it. I used to build a spreadsheet every year of every single change that we could imagine from roll bar changes to taking the whole rear end off, the gearbox off, to taking the floor off, an engine change, and build up a picture of, you know, as, as best we could, how long these things would take so that when we get into the heat of battle, the engineers and the guys on the pit wall could make a much more informed decision about what we could do to overcome a problem in the time we had available. So those things, there, there is no instruction manual. Like I said, it's figuring it out as you go, constantly modifying it. And it's an evolutionary process all the way through the year. And it will continue because when the cars get updated over the season, all of that stuff may go out the window and that time limit that you've set yourself may change. So it's about always being adaptive, reactive and, uh, and sort of working on the fly. And I guess that is formula one, isn't it? You've, uh, you can't be set in stone because you'll very quickly get left behind. You're listening to the race F1 tech show brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. How difficult did the cars become to work on? In your time at McLaren, some of the cars were really fiddly with those aero flicks everywhere. So how do you mm. avoid accidentally damaging parts while <laughs> trying to work quickly? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it is that it's part of the job. You know, you, you do, these cars are delicate in many areas. It's amazing, really, when you think about what they, what they do, these cars at 200 miles an hour, but in the wrong plane, there's no strength. Um, you know, some of these components will withstand huge loads in the right way, but in the wrong way, they'll snap like a twiglet, you know. So you do have to be careful, but we know that and we're experienced enough to be careful around those kind of things. I think the, you know, what you said at the beginning there, how difficult are these cars to work on? Some of them, really quite difficult. I mean, you know the story. I think we've even spoken about the story of the MP418, uh, a car that never actually raced for McLaren, but was hands down the worst car I've ever had to work on. Um, and I say that from a mechanical perspective in that it actually wasn't very quick anyway or reliable, but it was also really difficult to work on because, uh, you know, in some ways I respected what Adrian knew he was trying to do with it because he was really pushing the boundaries. He was being very innovative in a lot of areas. And some of those areas actually over later years kind of came back and found their place. So maybe he was just ahead of his time, but he was trying to package things in a way that was all about aerodynamic gain and aerodynamic performance, as Adrian always did, but with very little um, thought, or it seemed like very little thought on the practicality or the operational side of things. And I do remember, I remember actually a, a big sort of barge board that we had on the car. It wasn't the Emperor 418. It was about the, I think it was around sort of mid 2000s, 2005. We had an enormous deflector around the front suspension. And Adrian Newey insisted that the front top wishbone had to go through the middle of this deflector. Now, the deflector is something that gets broken quite regularly, it gets stone chipped. So it's quite a, a component that gets changed relatively frequently. But if 
the front suspension goes through the middle of it and there was no slots. There's just a hole. So you had to build it, you know, build the car essentially with the deflector, with the front wishbone going through the deflector. Now, if a component like that has to be changed regularly, you don't want to be taking the whole front suspension off just to change this deflector. And so the obvious thing was just to put a slot in it so that we could slot it over the front suspension and not have to take the suspension off. And I remember saying this to Adrian Newey in the midst of a, another one of these battles of trying to take this deflector off after it got damaged. And he walked past and I stopped him and I said, Adrian, I said, just out of interest, I said, when you're designing these cars, as a rough percentage, how much of your design time goes into making the, the component as light and as fast as possible compared to how much goes into being practical? And he said, 0% goes into it being practical. It's all about the component being light and fast and aerodynamic. And it kind of summed Adrian up, um, but it also sums up some of the difficulties that the mechanics and engineers have to sometimes contend with. And that's Formula One. You know, there's a battle of different elements of a team that are often competing against each other in their very nature, but actually you have to get them working with each other to get the overall best outcome for the, uh, for the organisation. One of the most complex challenges must be when you're confronted with a car that's been where it shouldn't have been and just been fired into the wall by one of those <laughs> unhelpful racing drivers. What's that process like? Yeah. You know the car's been crashed, so the aim is to get it back and rebuild it, but you've got to diagnose what's broken. You've got to make sure you don't leave any parts that are damaged or compromised in the rebuild, and you've also got to salvage all the parts from the crash because you want to study how they failed, etc. So how complicated is it? Everyone always focuses purely on that rebuild process, but it's not just the rebuild you're doing in that time, is it? So take me through that yeah. process after someone has just very unhelpfully chucked it into a wall at 150 miles an hour? Well, I'll, I'll start the process just before they lob it into the wall, because at that point, you're probably on a qualifying lap and on the edge of your seat, hoping you're going to get a pole position or something close. And then all of a sudden, you get this horrible sinking feeling as you're watching the monitor in the garage and it gets itself buried into some tyres. Uh, so that's horrible, first of all. Um, it's horrible because... A, from a competitive point of view, you know that session's over. Uh, but B, you know you've got this big rebuild, probably with not a lot of time. Uh, certainly if it happens on a Saturday morning, for example, you haven't got a lot of time to get that car repaired ahead of the big qualifying session. And yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a huge mechanical operation, but that's kind of almost the easy bit. We've built those cars so many times uh, by the time we go racing that it's you could do it with your eyes closed. The challenge is knowing which components to change and which ones we can sort of sign off as being okay. And that's a big call to make sometimes. And we have various tools that we can use, uh, ultrasonic scanning systems and uh, crack detection systems that we can use to scan these components and just to make sure there's nothing that's clearly broken that the, the naked eye can't see. But at some point, you've got to make a judgment call as well as that. So as a mechanic and as an engineer, you have to kind of decide, well, yeah, my professional opinion is it's it's going to be okay. And given the time frames we've got, I'd probably change it if we had longer, but I'm convinced, I'm, I'm confident it's okay, so we're going to go with it. And, um, you know, that's quite a, tall, a tough call to make because there's quite a lot at stake, obviously. So there's that side of things. But also, if you are building that car back together up in uh, in under time constraints, which is almost always the case, there's some serious pressure involved. And again, coming back to the different roles in the team, you know, as a front end mechanic, for example, if it's the front end that's gone into the barriers, you're then in charge and, and it's your domain. So you start almost orchestrating all the other people that have now come down to your end of the car to help you out because you know that bit of the car inside out. So you're getting somebody to do the lower front wishbone on the left hand side. Someone else is going to change the upright. And 
but you're the point of contact all the way through that because it's your bit. The number one mechanic is sort of overseeing the entire operation, uh, making sure we've got all the right parts. All those parts have lifing numbers, which need to be logged. So we always have to have a digital picture of exactly which components are on the car. So we know exactly how much mileage they've done, because that's another really important part of looking after the um, sort of reliability of these components. They can only do a certain lifespan uh, before we know they're going to be prone to failure. So that's a really crucial part. And even in the midst of battle, you can't afford to just throw bits on without checking their life, uh, their current life and and logging what's on the car because you'll get unstuck further down the line. So there are quite a lot of complicated parts to that process. And in the midst of that time pressure that I said, all it looks like all hell's breaking loose. But actually, in reality, we've kind of rehearsed this to some extent. We know each other so well that we know who's best under these conditions, who's works best in which particular area. And it's I mean, it's almost like, I think if you watch it on television, it probably does look like a bomb site and, and chaos ensuing. But actually, it's almost like this strange, almost like a, a ballet happening inside the garage where actually it's it's relatively under control and we know exactly what we're doing, when we're doing it, we know how much time we got left. And we're all fairly confident in the most case that we'll be able to achieve what we set out to achieve. Because if we weren't, we wouldn't have started the process unless you're really up against it and the car's a total mess, you wouldn't have started a process unless you knew, you know, you had the time available to fix it. So it's kind of strangely under control in the garage, although it often looks completely out of control when you watch it on the television. During your time in McLaren, the Park for May regulations were adopted, so you couldn't rebuild the car pretty much every day anymore. That must have been a huge change. There were mm. suggestions at the time that this would cause all sorts of unreliability problems because you couldn't do it. But there were also counter-arguments that suggested that perhaps improved reliability because it created less potential for a bit of finger trouble or whatever to introduce problems. So how big a shift was that? It was a, it was a really big shift because, I don't know, I can't remember which year it came in, but for, for most of my career up until that point, we had been doing exactly that. So every night, you know, you'd be pulling the car to a million pieces and putting it back together and looking for small improvements or whatever. Uh, but, but the knock-on effect of that was over a race weekend, particularly early in the season when you're starting to learn the car and it's relatively new, you'd, you'd, there was no time for sleep. And this was before the days of health and safety. You know, you'd be quite regularly doing all-nighters in the garage. And, and I can't remember many Australian Grand Prix when we got back to the gar- to the hotel for more than a handful of hours over the entire weekend because we were just always at the racetrack. So on the plus side, the Park Fermi rules meant that we couldn't do that anymore, which of course was partly why it was brought in, uh, to make sure that there was an opportunity to to go back and, and get some sleep and and this health and safety idea, which obviously makes perfect sense when you're putting a car, a car together that that's going to carry a driver around at 200 miles an hour. If you've not been to bed all night and perhaps for three nights, there's a, an inherent safety risk in that. So that was part of the thinking behind it. So from one hand, it was a, a welcome addition from the mechanics because we got to go out and we'll go home on a Saturday night. Um, but actually, yeah, you're right, because what does happen is that um, there was this immediate sort of thought process that, well, we only take it apart on a Saturday night because that's what we have to do. You know, these cars, surely they'll never get through a Grand Prix if we don't go through all those checks and processes on the Saturday night, because that's how we've always done it. But the reality is, and this is always the case in Formula One, you just adapt. And it's the same with the curfew that we have in, in modern Formula One, where the teams have to be out of the garages by a set time every evening. Again, something that, you know, that wasn't something that was part of Formula One's history. And how on earth could we possibly cope? Because you always need to do the odd late night. 
but you just work around it. So you adapt. So you change your schedule and you change the jobs that need doing and you sort of lower the lifing limits on some of these components, for example, where you or you produce components that will do a longer life limit. So you go all the way back to the beginning of the process and you know which parameters you've got to work within, whether that's a technical regulation, a sporting regulation or things like part Fermi. And you start designing your cars to suit. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. And of course, Formula One is very, very good at adapting and dealing with changing circumstances uh, that happen almost all of the time, that the goalposts are constantly being moved in Formula One. And it's one of the things that F1 teams and the people in F1 teams are very, very good at. I think in the real world, in, a, in a sort of in inverted commas, the real world, out in office environments around the world, in many companies, and I see this now in what I do today, going off to see big corporates, is when a, a regulation changes and they don't have regulation change in the most part in anywhere near the frequency that we have in Formula One. But when a regulation changes, it's total panic because they're not used to it and they, they find it very hard to adapt in certainly in the short space of time that Formula One is very good at doing. So that's one of the things that I took away from my time in Formula One is, is this ability to be adaptive, to be proactive in, in times. But if the changing, if the world changes or the, or the regs change, you know, there's no point complaining or moaning about it. You've just got to get on with it because everyone else is. And if you don't, you're going to get left behind. So that's something I've taken away and, and I think has probably stayed with me, you know, ever since. And I'm now able to share as lessons, I guess, with other people. Just as a broad point, how tough is the job? Obviously, it's a lot of races, but for example, just walking into a garage in Singapore can be unbearable if you're just standing there, let alone wearing overalls, working hard, doing pit stops, etc. So how hard is it? It is hard. Um, and I always sort of have to temper this because I know that so many people would give their left arm to to work in this industry. Um, so I don't want to come across as ever complaining about it. I loved every single second of it, but my goodness, it was hard. Yeah. I mean, it's changed. The job's changed a lot, but it's not not to say that it's become easier. Parts of it have become easier with things like curfews and part fermes. But also, as you said, number of races has gone up and is continuing to grow to grow up uh, to go up. And um, and that takes a huge toll. So as well as the job itself on the day to day basis, it's not you know it's not even just a job. It's a lifestyle that you have to commit to when you sign up to a Formula One team. It's not a nine to five. You know you're working every weekend and the sort of knock-on effects of all that, as well as this, the overall tiredness and the the fatigue that kicks in with all the travel and then shifting time zones and all those things, there's the, the knock-on effects of, of what happens to family life back at home, for example, your friends uh, that you may have had before coming into Formula One, you gradually lose touch with them because you're just never there. And you're certainly never there at the times when all of your friends and family are off work, i.e. weekends. Um, you know, for most people, they work Monday to Friday and they have Saturday and Sunday off work. Well, you're kind of always working on a, on a Saturday and Sunday. And so over time, people stop inviting you to the barbecues and the weddings and the things that you used to get invited to and uh, and family occasions. And and that's tough in itself. You, you obviously have to deal with it. And we all sign up to this. And I think almost everybody in Formula One is doing it voluntarily. So they're not uh, under duress. Um, but I think perhaps the hardest thing, and, and this is a, an example that's replicated all the way through this sport, is that it's very, very tough for everybody who's got a partner, a wife or a husband, children, you know, because the only way you can do this job and whatever aspect you're doing it as a mechanic or any part of the whole Formula One circus, you can only do that if you've got a really understanding, you know, significant others at home who kind of support you on that journey. 
because it is very tough and not many other people understand it. And I think what I found coming through this sport was the only other people who understand kind of how tough it is are the other people who are there in it with you. Um, so when you sort of dip out of it and you come away and you come back for a, a winter or you do get a rare few days at home, it's very difficult to sort of for anyone else to understand how can you be tired? How can you be, you know, uh, down or, or feeling a bit uh, miserable or a bit homesick? How could you? I just saw you on telly in Monaco at the weekend, you know, and, and everyone's surely just having the time of their life on the back of a yacht. So it's about perception um, is one thing, but I think uh, it is tough. There's no two ways about it. I mean, you know this, Ed, from from what you do. It is just tough. It's just a, a tough existence and something that's quite alien to most people. Yeah, it's certainly a very significant amount of time. Probably the time that mechanics are most obvious to people is when it comes to the pit stops. Obviously, yeah. they've changed a little bit since your time in that the really fast pit stops are back, tyre limited now rather than fuel limited. Is that part of the weekend that the mechanics really relish being able to do? Or do they almost dread it because it's the point where nobody really gives you much credit if things go well, but then the one time something goes wrong, it's there for all to see. That's true. Nobody remembers the good pit stops. They only remember the bad ones, don't they? But um, but no, I used to love it. I absolutely, it was my favourite part of the entire operation was the pit stop. The adrenaline rush that comes from it is irreplaceable. In fact, probably today, it's the one thing I miss most um, about being in the, in the team, you know, I get to come back to the, the Grand, on the Grand Prix circuit every now and again with my media, uh, in their media capacity. So I get to see everybody. I get to still experience that side of it. But the pit stop was just the most incredible adrenaline rush. It's, you know, the thing with it back then when I first started, it did change over time. But I remember the first pit stops I ever did. Of course, back then we were talking about the V8s and the V10s. Um, so the noise was incredible. And that noise that we all used to, to love, that you could hear for 10 miles away from the circuit, you imagine being 30 centimetres away from that uh, whilst, you know, when you change the tyre. And, you know, I say to people, this sort of the visceral experience that, that was, that the car comes in and it comes in hot, you know, quite often it'd be all locked up, screeched up on the ragged edge. Uh, I mean, DC, David Coulthard knocked me over once because he came in all out of shape, but he was so aggressive getting to his pit stop marks. But... That's kind of how it was. So you're on the edge straight away and then the car stops and, you know, you get the wheel gun off and that wheel comes away and the brakes are glowing red hot, sometimes on fire because there's bits of rubber that have uh, fallen off the, the wheel as it come away and they're just burning. So you've got flames licking up in front of you. The heat emanating from those brakes and the exhausts burns you through your fire suit. I mean, it literally burns your skin. It's so hot. And then you zip the wheel back on. And then the, the driver then is on the rev limiter. And back then it was 21,000 RPM. I mean, it's insanely loud. It shook you. It literally shook your bones. So you've got this burning sensation. You've got the bones being rattled to pieces by this vibration from the noise. And then within a, a second or two, you know, he's wheel spinning away from you, literally right in front of your nose. And it is the most amazing experience. And um, even just that part of it is incredible, amazing adrenaline rush. But you have the opportunity as, you know, a, a simple mere, mere mechanic, you know, a part of the backroom staff. And this is where Formula One is different to most other sports. The backroom staff, if that's what you call us, have the opportunity to change the outcome of the, of the event in the middle of the event, you know, come out into the field of play and take part in, you know, in a way that uh, most other sports don't don't have. So that side of things where I, I knew that what I did could affect the outcome. And I know that the, the sort of obvious reason that I could affect the outcome might be a negative one if I get it wrong. 
But just knowing that you're under that pressure, I must have been one of these strange people, and I think Formula One's littered with them, who thrive on pressure like that, and I loved it. Um, and on the rare occasion when your driver comes in in second place but leaves the pit stop in first place is the most amazing feeling because tangibly then you've changed the outcome of that race for the better. What's it like the first time you do one of those live pit stops in a race? Do you remember that? Was that a particularly terrifying experience? Oh, my goodness. I remember like it was yesterday. Yeah, it's terrifying, utterly terrifying. I mean, I'd I dreamt of my my sole reason for getting into Formula One, as I said at the beginning, was the technical side. But also I was always fascinated by these sort of mysterious uh, helmet clad guys that would burst out of the garage to do these pit stops. They're like anonymous superheroes to me. They came out of the garage out of nowhere, did this amazing operation in, in this incredible time and then disappeared again. And so my dream really was to always become part of a Formula One pit stop. And when I got that opportunity, I mean, I'll tell you the story of my first pit stops. It was quite funny. I mean, I, I got sent out to Australia for my first race and uh, the, the team manager, because I was young and inexperienced, I'd never done a Formula One pit stop. He gave me the job of putting on the spare nose cone. So that's quite a rare thing, right? So it hardly ever happens. It only ever happens if the driver has an accident and knocks off the first one. And it was Kimmy was my driver at the time. And um, I remember the race getting underway. And I, I was so nervous all week because I'd had a disastrous practice on the Wednesday. And um, I was kind of keeping my fingers crossed, having dreamt of doing this for years, keeping my fingers crossed that it wouldn't happen because I was so terrified. And as the race got underway, I think, I mean, I think three or five seconds after the lights going out, the team manager comes on the radio and he says, guys, Kiwi's had an accident at turn one. He's knocked his nose off and he's on his way in for a pit stop. And my whole world just stopped. <laughs> and I remember just going into blind panic mode and um, running around like a headless chicken. And, uh, you know, you know what the McLaren garage is like. It's pristine. It's immaculate at all times, particularly in the Ron Dennis era. And I came back from the grid just in headless chicken mode, threw all this equipment into the garage, scattered chairs everywhere, all around Ron, who's still watching the start of the race on the monitor, and ran around trying to find my balaclava, grabbed the nose for Kimmy's car, and stood out there on my own, shaking like a leaf, just panicking that I knew I was about to destroy McLaren's race in my mind. That's what was definitely about to happen. I was regretting telling all my friends and family back home what my new job was because they were about to see this anonymous guy putting on the nose and know it was me. Um, and anyway, Kimmy's turned up at the on the pit stop marks and everyone burst into action. And my job was to then put on a spare nose cone and then get out of the way for the front jack man to come and, and lower the car back down. And I did that and my part went seamlessly. It was perfect. It could, In fact, it couldn't have gone any better. It was the best I'd ever done in all the practices. And I burst away back into the garage so relieved and happy and then realized that the car was still in the pit lane and it should have long gone by now and what i'd missed in my own kind of sense of euphoria was that uh, there was this radio traffic between kimmy and the pit wall saying that when kimmy had gone off and had his accident a tiny stone or a piece of gravel had leapt up in the air and gone down between his back and the seat of the car and he was so tightly strapped in of course he can't reach to get that out himself and he's too painful to carry on so in the end, there were about 15 people clambering all over this stationary F1 car, trying to find a stone no bigger than a pea, with Kimmy screaming and shouting, angry, revving the nuts off this car, desperate to get back in the race. And I'm in the garage just with a beaming smile because my little bit had gone really well. And it ended up being one of the McLaren's most disastrous pit stops ever. Um, but I was really happy because my bit was good. So it completely changed my my opinion, you know, and this this idea that's 
I could have easily made that pit stop a total disaster by myself. And luckily I didn't, but I can't ever make the pit stop, the perfect pit stop by myself either. And that's this total realization that a pit stop is this coming together of 20 or so people under immense pressure, all with a, a job to do that has to be done seamlessly and choreographed with each other. And it's, you know, we see it often now, the TV companies do this a lot, the, the broadcasters, where you slow down this pit stop and you break it down into its exploded parts. And it's something I use a lot now as a, a model to teach teamwork in other companies of how the intricacies and, the, and the, the, the sort of intricacies of how all these people have to be so carefully choreographed and have such trust with each other. Because the only way it works is if you have total trust that the guy next to you is going to do his job perfectly because you can't wait for him to finish before you start yours. And and that teamwork element is one of the most fascinating things, I think, about Formula One. And as I said, I go and see so many companies today who dream of having great teamwork, high-performing teams, and yet Formula One has it in abundance. It's no accident. They work very hard at doing it, but it's a real strength of this industry. Working for McLaren for so long, of course, meant you work for Ron Dennis. Every F1 fan will be familiar with him, but some might forget he was an F1 mechanic in his time. Mm, so yeah. did he have a real understanding of what you were doing, given you might think he'd find the mechanics a little bit untidy and dirty, but yeah. he must have had <laughs> yeah. very sympathy for the job you were doing. Well, I think he, I genuinely think he did have a sympathy, but he also did see the mechanics as being quite untidy and made the place look a bit messy. Um, you know, I had, uh, I had quite long hair for quite a period of time. I used to wear a baseball cap backwards, which he hated. Um, so he'd have loved us all to have conformed into uh, the same looking people. Um, but I think when, when we were really up against it and when, uh, you know, all hell had broken loose and we'd had a big, you know, panic getting the car back together, ready for qualifying, for example, you know, he could come over into the melee, middle of that melee if we just got the car out and he just made it out before the red light came on at the end of the pit lane. And we're all celebrating just getting the car back together. He'd come along and, and just into the middle of there and just give us a sort of pat on the back or a knowing smile or saying, well done. And or a little wink was his thing. He'd often give you a little wink. And, and just that little wink was enough, you know, to sort of fill you with pride. And uh, I have a huge amount of respect for Ron. And I think a big part of that comes from his background. You know, he did build his way up from doing a job that I did, albeit many years earlier. And look what he's built. He's built not only an amazing Formula One team, but a group of technology companies really is what McLaren is today. Hugely successful on a global scale. And that comes from his vision. He was a visionary, but it comes from his attention to detail and all the other traits that we, we know about Ron. He certainly wasn't perfect. He certainly made my life very difficult on many of many occasions uh, given the sort of um, the, the sort of standards that he required from us all, but that was the same thing that that made us all so successful. And and I have to sort of stand back today with a bit of hindsight and have a huge appreciation um, because we achieved so much under that leadership of Ron. And actually, if I think about what I've gone on to do since you touched on it at the, at the beginning, almost all of that, so at least a huge part of that has to come from what Ron taught me about attention to detail and about building these teams and, and this sort of focus on, on on getting the job done to the very highest standard. And if you apply those kind of things, really, yes, of course, it, it's obviously it works in Formula One. But in reality, if you apply that same standard and that same focus outside of Formula One in other parts of your life, you stand to sort of make some gains. And, and that's what I've leveraged to go on to, to build a second career, I guess. 
Before we go, we're going to have to let you have the opportunity to plug some of your activities. I'll open up with <laughs> suggesting people check out your book, The Mechanic, The Secret World of the F1 Pit Lane. Thank you. But also your podcast, <laughs> which is all about connecting F1 to the real world. Exactly. So that's the thing I'm most passionate about, actually, at the moment. And it's, um, you know, as I said, I started having left the team working in the corporate world, going to speak to big companies about how they can apply F1 mentality, if you like, to their businesses to become better. And it's been really successful. But what I realized was that same mentality or same F1 mindset, we can all do with that. We can all benefit from having that. I've benefited, I know, on a personal level, as I just said, from the things I learned through Formula One. And so the podcast is there every week to, to try and pick up some lessons from either what's going on in Formula One today, uh, some, time, some of my time in Formula One, some of the things that I've learned. And I've gone on to study psychology and team psychology since leaving the team because it's a passion of mine. And it really does form a big part of what the podcast Pit Lane Life Lessons is all about. So the idea is I can hopefully help people to achieve a little bit more success by thinking more like a Formula One team does. Well, thanks very much for your time, Mark. It's been fascinating as always. And for those who would like to hear more from you, I thoroughly recommend the podcast, even though I must admit to being a little bit behind in my listening because I try and listen to more podcasts than there are hours in the day. (laughs) Good to know you're listening. Cheers, Ed. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd love for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can either write us a question and email it to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at the hyphen race.com. Or record a voice note and remember to tell us who you are that we'll play in the show. Today's question is from Jamie Rowley, who says, You mentioned wind tunnels in the last podcast and the effect of the airflow against the conveyor belt and how important this is to data correlation. It got me thinking about how sensitive the Mercedes has been to bumpy tracks. Are the team not able to simulate the difference in track surfaces by texturing parts of the conveyor belt to give a better understanding of how the car will perform over smooth and bumpy tracks? Would this have helped identify how sensitive the porpoising would have been over bumps earlier in car development? Well, um, Jimmy, I think the, the bumping thing is, is not really possible in a wind tunnel. I mean, the, the fact that the car is moved on the ground because of bumps would be very, very difficult to simulate. Um, by using the belt. I mean, what I was saying with the wind tunnel is the fact that, you know, uh, if you look at the outside outside world as such on a calm day, um, the air's sitting still, the ground's sitting still, and it's the car that's traveling through it. So you've got one thing, one thing traveling through the airflow across the surface of the ground. Um, in the wind tunnel, you've got air being, being pushed around the wind tunnel or pulled around the wind tunnel, whichever way you like to look at it. Uh, and you've got a belt, and those two need to connect up. So they're traveling at the same speed because that's very important. That's where you get the correlation. So the airspeed and the belt speed need to be the same. And that can be influenced as well by the surface texture of the belt, not not the bumpiness, but the surface texture, because every track has a different surface te- texture as well. And the, the coarser the surface texture, the easier it will be to keep that boundary layer uh, together uh, where, the, where the air and the belt you know are, are traveling at at the same speed theoretically uh, the smoother the surface texture the, the more difficult it will be and then again you introduce the car the car is sitting still so it's important to get all the factors as near to what the real world is as possible um, but to put uh, to put the different surface textures on the belt so it has been tried in the past 
Uh, it can be done because it's um, you know yeah just a surface texture basically to simulate different tracks, but it gets a bit sort of uh, a expensive and time consuming because changing the belt on a on a rolling road wind tunnel is not a five minute job by any means. Um, so normally people will get Mr. Average belt surface and that will be adequate, uh, knowing that they're going to a smoother track or a, a rougher track and it might just influence it fractionally. Um, but to put bumps in it, you know, you'd have to accelerate the car so fast. Uh, you would end up, you know, really getting screwed up with the data you're gathering and whatever. So I don't think that's possible. I think the, the main thing that Mercedes did was try to design a car initially that needed to run too close to the ground and there'll always be bumps at some tracks so that's going to affect that car more dramatically than others and i guess what simulations you can do for the bumps you can do in cfd or using various other simulation tools so there are other ways to tackle this without using the wind tunnel uh, yeah there are other ways of, of trying to work it out i wouldn't say they're they're, they're perfect um, but i would say that the wind tunnel would be the least available tool to do that or the the, the yeah the least available tool the thing that you got to remember is you know as i say with the old cars the big flat floor area um and the 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 50 millimeter raised section down the sides of the car uh the car as i say moving up and down acted a bit like a pair of bellows it would suck air in and it would uh, it would push air out when it went back down again and the, the diffuser itself was much less powerful so in other words the, the floor had a mind of its own and it would do its own thing these cars have got a lower side on the on the side pods um, they've got a larger tunnel and a larger diffuser so in effect they they don't work as well as a bellow they will rise up and it will disturb the the uh, diffuser much much more um, its performance and then whenever they come back down again over a bump uh, again it will disturb the diffuser because you you're trying to pressurize the air and push it out somewhere and uh, the diffuser being strong enough uh, just either keeps working consistently or gives up and then tries to reattach again. And it's the giving up and reattaching again that makes it, uh, you know, as I say, create the porpoising as such. Uh, the bumping and the porpoising are two different things. The porpoising is an aerodynamic uh, 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 frequency thing which can lead to bump bouncing because it can lead to hitting the ground. But bouncing is when it hits the ground and gets you know, driven up back up again from the ground. So there there are two quite different frequencies that they happen at. The porpoising can lead to the bouncing. Bouncing very very seldom could lead to porpoising. Well thanks to Jamie Rowley for that great question. If you have a question, make sure you send it through to podcasts at the race.com. Well, the F1 season may be over, but we've still got plenty to talk about on the race F1 tech show. So make sure you join us next week for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.